You're listening to Comedy Central. I'm just going to go straight into this because it was probably one of the most amazing things I've seen. This is you and some of your friends at the ESPYs. Okay. Let's use this moment as a call to action for all professional athletes to educate ourselves, explore these issues, speak up, use our influence, and renounce all violence. And most importantly, go back to our communities, invest our time, our resources, help rebuild them, help strengthen them, help change them. We all have to do better. Powerful work. You're an NBA, you're an NBA superstar. Why do you feel you need to say something like that in a sports forum? Uh, it just comes natural to me. Um, and, you know, for me personally, um, I know where I come from, you know, growing up in inner city in Akron, Akron Ohio. And I know the challenges that kids have. Yeah. And, and, and for our society to become as great as it should be, I think it starts from the ground up and it starts in our communities, our own communities, going back into our communities, using our resources, using our knowledge. You know, anybody can lend money or anybody can go give an appearance, but I think actually being there and them seeing you gives them, it gives the kids hope. And uh, you know, without the kids, we have no future. So it, it just comes natural to me and I understand what they go through. I walk the same uh, streets as them. Yeah. I, I breathe the same air as those kids. I know what they go through, you know, growing up in tough situations. So um, I think that's very important for all of us. You, you, uh, you got into wheels for education. I mean, that was really your, your first foray yeah. into this uh, independently. You, you didn't have a way to get to school when you were a kid. Nah. You struggled getting to school, and so you started a program to help kids out. And now you start with third graders. Yeah. Why third graders specifically? Well, uh, between myself and, and my office and everyone at my foundation, there was we read upon it, and, and the statistics show that um, if kids get behind in the third grade, then it's the least amount of chance for them to graduate high school. Yeah. And, and so that's why we started in third grade. And yesterday was my... Uh, LeBron James Family Foundation reunion, where we welcome another third grade class into our into our um, program, and this is our sixth year now. So, wow. uh, and, and uh, thank you. Wow. This is our sixth year, and it, it was unbelievable. If, if anybody has ever come to Ohio and been to Sandusky, Ohio, and been to the Great Cedar Point Amusement Park, yeah. I brought 5,000 families yesterday. Wow. Uh, to the amusement park for our for our reunion. I think it's fascinating that you say get involved and yeah. actively get involved because you do something that is honestly the meanest and most amazing thing ever. You record messages for these kids <laughs> to inspire them. So, so for, for those who don't know, LeBron James records messages and sends them out to these kids. So if they're not like at school, then you'll get a message from LeBron James. <laughs> do you not understand how heartbreaking that is? <laughs> like, does it, what do you say? What do you say in the call? Uh, well, if you don't, if you miss school, uh, they will get a phone call and say, hey, listen, you're very important to the classroom and you're very important to your friends and your family and we need you in school. If you're not doing well in school, I say, well, listen, we need you to read the books. We need you to stay in the classroom and listen to your teachers. And there's also times, because I know kids, they would try to get slick and try to miss a couple of days of school. Because they want to, the message from LeBron James. Because they want the message from LeBron James. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I show up at the school on them and be like, listen, I know what you're trying now. I was a kid at one point, too. So this is, this is like the it. best guidance, guidance counselor in life ever. You better stop messing around. LeBron James is going to show up. And that's just so, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a beautiful story. You, you, you're also um, helping these kids, not just in third grade, but you're trying to get everyone through yeah. to a college education. Yeah, we, it's funny because I, I partnered with the University of Akron a few years back. And... Um, if, if our kids, and, and the criteria is, is very attainable. Yeah. If our kids can get from the third grade and graduate through high school, then there, there's a college scholarship waiting on them. Wow. It's, it's just wait for a ride. Just waiting on them. I, uh, I have a hunch. I have a hunch that you do that. Is, 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 is that part of the guilt maybe that you have because... Uh, <laughs> No, I mean, th there's probably kids out there who've come up to you and gone, hey, LeBron, uh, I was gonna go straight from high school to the NBA, but you shut that down, so now I gotta go to college. Is that why you did it? Well, I, I've had kids say, well, well Mr. James, um, you want us to go to college, but I read something about you, you didn't go. <laughs> and I thought it was practice what you preach, and I was like, well... You know, back then when I had an opportunity, I was I'm a lot older than you. Uh, college, college, <laughs> they didn't have college when I came out of high school. <laughs> oh. oh man, before before we before we go to a break, one of the most innovative things that you do honestly blew me away is you're not just providing education for the kids. You have a program where you help parents yeah. get a GED. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you say that. <laughs> and, and, and it, you know, Trevor, it's funny you said because as much as we as much as we want to hit home on the kids, what happens in their household means a lot as well. Yeah. So, you know, I have all my kids that, that's looked after. I have mentors that look after them. I have high school kids that look after my kids as well. But when they go home, they have to have someone else they look up to as well. Yeah. And and sometimes, you know, you have a lot of parents that's not educated as well. So we've given opportunity for parents in these households that didn't graduate high school to get an opportunity to graduate, get a GED as well. So they can feel like, you know, parents do their work, kids do their work. They feel like, listen, we all empowered and it's pretty cool that we're, we're, we're able to do. When you look at that journey and when you, when you look at what you want to do now in both Chicago and Miami, you have a few initiatives that you're working on now. Yeah. What is your dream? What are you trying to implement in the communities to try and help people? Yeah, um, so when I, was a, when I was a little kid, you know, I just remember, you know, always saying to myself, if, if God blessed me with an opportunity to, to, to make it, right? To, to be able to give back to others, I want to do it, and I want to do it in a big way. You know, I want to I want to be able to bless communities in a way that's going to change their lives. If I get that opportunity, and once I got the opportunity, I want to live right. You know, I want to I want to do what I said. So, you know, in Chicago, first from my mother's standpoint, I said, you know what, mom, here's a church. You do your part with the church. Um, I bought my mom a church early on, so she can continue to save lives. Bought your mom a church. I bought my mom a church. That's, all, that, that's a whole nother story, uh, how we got to that point. But I, I ended up at my mom a church, and I said, you do your job to, you know, to save lives. You know, my mother is an amazing pastor um, in the city of Chicago. My dad, my dad is into the community. My dad does amazing. That's where I got it from. I watched my dad for so many years um, give back to the community. He had me out there as a kid. Um, even though we didn't have a lot of the things we had, we had to give, give away, give to others. If I had two pair of shoes, I only ended up having one because I gave the other pair away. So I kind of had a family that I've watched my whole life kind of make sure they give. And we didn't have a lot. We didn't have a lot at all. But um, what we had was more than what others had. And so we wanted to make sure that we can, you know, we can give to the others. So 
Um, it kind of started from there. Then when I got to college, my college coach always told me, he always said, Dwayne, too much is given, much is required. Too much is given, much is required. And I know what he meant at the time. And then once I got older, I started understanding what that mean. I, I've been given so much, and a lot is required of me. It's required of me not only to give from my pockets, but to lend my voice, to lend my face, to stand up on this platform and support and talk about. So, all those things. That's something you haven't been afraid of doing. You know, there, there, there are a lot of athletes who've been afraid of lending their voice to causes that they believe in or people that they support. You know, uh, your good friend and basically your brother, LeBron James, is somebody that you've been on a journey with for many years yeah. where you've been speaking about issues. Yeah. Um, we've seen you at, at, at sports ceremonies. We've seen you with the Parkland kid, for instance. Parkland yeah. kids, for instance. You spent three hours with them the first day they came back to school. Why do you think... Why do you think as a... As an athlete... As an athlete, why do you think it's so important for you to step out from beyond the game and to engage in ideas that you, you, you believe in? Well, you know, going back to that, we was in Philadelphia when we, when we heard the news um, about what happened, and I didn't know exactly where it was at. And as, immediately, as a parent, I got scared because I have kids in school, and I knew it was what area it was in, but I didn't know which school, so immediately, I'm scared, right? I'm hard as racing, I'm beating fast, I'm trying to call my kids. And eventually I got on the phone with my kids and I realized that they was okay. But then I knew that other parents out there was hurting the same way that I was hurting, was feeling that same anxiety. So once we got a chance to come back um, to the city, it was just like, hey, can I go to the school? Can I go up there and visit? And I don't know what I'm going to do, but I just want to be able to, to bring some sort of light. I had just got back to the city. The, the city of Miami had welcomed me back with open arms uh, when I got traded back. And I wanted to bring some light. So... I had an opportunity to go, and I didn't know what to expect. It was real quiet when I got there, but man, when the kids saw me, it just it opened them up. The light in their eyes, the smiles on their faces, that right there was one of the biggest, one of the most important moments in my life of, you know what, this, what basketball has done for me and the platform that I have, this is what it's about. And I got an opportunity to sit down in a room with, with their leaders and talk to them about, hey, what can I do? What can my team do to help support you guys' initiative, what you're trying to do? Um, and it started from, you know what, my voice. Then it went from the support financially and so forth and so on. And we continue to do things. We did exhibits here in Miami and New York and L.A. We continue to support because this is my community. This is our community, and it means a lot to us. You've always been... Uh, on the front lines of getting food to people who need it, getting um, equipment to kids who need it in schools, helping kids out with, with, um, with uh, sports programs, etc. As soon as coronavirus hit, we saw Steph Curry in a way we've never seen him before. You came out in full force with your foundation and yourself and your, wa- and your wife Aisha said, you know what, we're going to help the kids. Tell us a little bit about what, what your foundation is doing right now. Uh, there's a lot of food insecurity uh, right in our backyard. And so, uh, like you said, myself and uh, especially my wife, uh, you know, we wanted to really formalize a strategy around how we can really, you know, amplify that impact. And so a year ago, we started our Eat, Learn, Play Foundation and uh, I've been working really hard to get it off the ground and running and, and, and get to work, um, not knowing that obviously, you know, coronavirus would hit. And that would only just exaggerate the, the need um, at, the, at, at the base level from, you know, just having uh, proper supplies for food, uh, especially when the school systems uh, shut down out here, the Oakland Unified School District. You don't realize how many kids rely on uh, the right. school system for, you know, their meals uh, throughout the week. And so 
thankfully we had a foundation set up that uh, once you know coronavirus hit and we saw the need that we were already working on, uh, you know, Amplify, uh, it was uh, it was awesome to be able to kind of engage right away. And so many people helped us. We have an amazing team. We have an amazing support out here. But uh, there's so many kids in need, and we've. Uh, now providing over a million meals so far. And, and as we wow. know, as this virus continues, that need is only going to continue to grow. So there's still more work to be done and more awareness um, and support that's that's necessary. But uh, just grateful to be able to in a position to be able to help right away um, in, a, in a meaningful way. You, your organization was, was all about helping the kids before the virus hits. Um, you've always wanted to do something in a meaningful way, as you said, but you've had to pivot really quickly to the new situation with coronavirus, you know, um, because you can't be in the schools the same way you were before. The kids aren't coming to the schools in the same way they were they were before. So, what has your organization done to shift its, its um, you know, its, its its attack program? Getting the food to the kids as opposed to the kids coming to get the food. Um, getting the right people to get the food to them while still uh, maintaining their health. What what have you been forced to do? Absolutely, like you said, you had to reimagine uh, the process. Um... With restaurants closing down, with schools closing down, um, all the infrastructure is kind of interrupted. And so, from from our standpoint, uh, we really uh, want we partnered with the uh, Alameda County Community Food Bank, and uh, they stepped up in a meaningful way to open up distribution centers uh, so that those meals could be accessible to all the kids uh, and families uh, in, in the greater Oakland Bay area. So. Uh, from week one or two, uh, around you know the third week of March to now, uh, it was uh, around two or three drop-off centers. Now we're up to 20. And with Jose Andres in the World Central Kitchen, uh, they're stepping in to try to reopen restaurants to add, to serve as distribution centers. Um, wow. And that obviously provides a lot of different benefits. We're, we're getting food and meals where they need to be. Uh, people know where to go to get the meals. Um, but on top of that, you, you need a workforce and, and uh, a manpower to, to do that. And so for the restaurants that we can uh, engage with, that creates jobs. And so, like you said, nothing that you do is, is by yourself. We just happen to be in an amazing position to be able to connect the dots. Food insecurities have been happening for forever. <laughs> so systematic right. things that we're trying to deal with and, and just the history of that. But with the virus, it only uh, you know, it exacerbates that for sure. It feels like the NBA and many of its players have stepped up in a, in a really powerful and unique way. I remember the shock when the NBA announced that they were suspending the season. I mean, nobody thought it would happen. And then very quickly, we started to hear stories about how many people who worked in these arenas wouldn't have a job. And you were one of the first players who stepped up and said, hey, I'm gonna give my own personal money to help pay for these people. I'm gonna help raise money to pay for these people's salaries. Um, and then the owners started stepping in, other players did as well. Why did you feel it was so important for you to do that? And, and how did you get everybody mobilizing? What, what was the attitude of the NBA? Yeah, well, it was about, uh, I guess Wednesday would be three weeks, um, you know, since that night in Oklahoma City when it was the Jazz versus uh, OKC. And, you know, I woke up the next day just just thinking about, um, you know, kind of like I mentioned, the, the stress and anxiety at this time and not knowing when or if uh, these people and these families are going to be able to, to put food on their table. I mean, a lot of these people mm -hmm. are living paycheck to paycheck. And these are people that are a part of not only my story, but the Cavs organization. Um, and you 
start to develop a, a first name basis and first name relationship with these with these people and start to you know ask about their family and you see them when you come into the arena, see them when you leave the arena. So I thought it was important to just take care of people that you know have taken care of me so long and are and are part of my story, honestly, on and off the floor. Yeah. Human beings are resilient, but but you're right. Everybody needs help getting through it, especially now. Um, one of the things I've always appreciated about you is how open you've been in discussing anxiety, depression, you know, um, opening up that conversation in the NBA and then getting people more comfortable speaking about how to deal with these issues in society. Coronavirus has presented a completely unique challenge for many people who suffer from anxiety or even depression where many of your circles are removed from you. Many people don't have the networks that keep them, um, you know, mentally as, as, as healthy as they'd like to be. What have you been doing during this period and what advice would you give people out there who go, Kevin, I, I, I'm not coping and it feels like this is triggering everything that, that gets me to the place I don't wanna be in? Well, no, I can say it uh, right back at you. I gotta tip the hat because I know that you know, this mental health has been a part of your story as well. So just, um, you know, continuing to create community in that aspect. I think that's a huge mm -hmm. thing during this time. You know, people will look back uh, you know, they're not gonna look back on their deathbed and say, hey, I wish I would have earned more money. I wish I would have, you know, had more fame. They're gonna say, you know, that those relationships are really what brought them, them joy and happiness. So I feel like that sense of community, especially since I had shared my story, I'm sure it's, it's you know, the same for you, especially with your book that, you know, a lot of people came out, uh, you know, in droves and, and large numbers and just expressed kind of the things that they had gone through and the things that they had experience whether it be you know firsthand or somebody you know just removed from their inner circle because we're we all have people that go through stuff and we all grieve and deal with loss at one point or another another but this this social isolation has been uh speaking of navigating this time very very different i had done right. a at nba all-star i'd done a panel with uh Giannis and chris paul uh, Mike Wilbon and, and President Obama, and he had he had brought something up to me that it's such a social issue. Like during this time, especially when it comes to mental health and depression and anxiety, that uh, it's the isolation and it's the loneliness that is yeah, that yeah. so devastating yeah. during this time. And I, I that that really stuck with me when he said that because I think that's sometimes lost on people. And I'm I'm fortunate to have a lot of great friends in my life and, and be able to, you know, talk with people like you that can scale up this message and, you know, allow people to, uh, you know, further these conversations. But that loneliness part of it is, 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 you know, very, very scary. And, uh, I think it's, it's important for people to know it's normal to feel this way. Uh, we're here because I wanted to talk to you about the NBA strike and the reason for the NBA strike. Now, I'm sure everybody knows about this, but for those who don't know, the NBA players went on strike and the games were postponed uh, after what happened in Kenosha. And it, it was really inspiring and also sad to see, you know, the players standing up and saying, we can't do this anymore. And Doc, we played a few of your comments, so I'll start with you. What do you think has made this moment in time so different? Why do you think these protests have really changed, not just sports, but our everyday lives? Because these protests, the game stopped. You know, the games have always gone on through all these different things that have happened. George Floyd's murders, the game uh, murdered, the game kept going, right? In this case, the game stopped. Uh, the players literally need to take a breath. 
And like I said earlier, it's not lost on me that George Floyd was never afforded to take that breath, but our players did. And doing that, they were able to refocus and come up with tangible things that they want to do. You know, there's so many people that protest, but this time we came out with tangible items that, that the NBA, the owners, and the players wanted to do. And so that's what makes this so different. Do you find, as someone who, who works so closely with the players, that a lot of the players might struggle even more to deal with what's happening because now it's almost an outside world. They're in a bubble. They're seeing this happening. They're away from their families. They're away from their communities. Do you think that also added to them saying, hey, we're not in the mood to go dunk a basketball right now. We have to focus on what's happening in America. Yeah, because usually when something like this happens, you're with your families. You can comfort your kids. Uh, you can try to explain to them what's going on uh, in America or in that city. They were not able to do that. And, and in some ways, being in this bubble, a lot of work, but the players don't feel it. They don't see it. They don't know what exactly what's going on. So I think in that way, you're exactly right. Steve, I know as an owner, you know, you've been one of the most vocal uh, supporters of, you know, police reform. You, you, you've been out there with the NBA saying, guys, something needs to be done. It is strange, you have to admit, though, that you are the owner of an NBA team and people are expecting you and, and the league to fix something that should be dealt with by the government. Is, is that ever a strange situation? Do you feel like it's an unnecessary burden to have? I, I think about it a little bit different. I, I don't know how to speak to the whole league, but I do know we have players, people like me who are citizens and getting out there, using our voices, supporting. I mean, that's that's the American way. You get out and you have uh, people proposing bills like the Justice and Policing Act, uh, the George Floyd bill. Great. There's a lot of good stuff in it. Let's make sure that the House and the Senate come together. I'm just a citizen on this one. I have something of a voice. Our players even have a louder voice. Uh, and, you know, that, that happens. That's not about basketball. That's about democracy. You, you, you've been instrumental in pushing the players, though, and, and giving them a platform to speak. What are some of the things you've learned from the players in these conversations that maybe you weren't fully aware of before they started? Well, certainly I've had an opportunity to hear from our players. Uh, Doc and I did a great uh, meeting with the team, a couple of meetings with the team, about the kinds of things that are, are on people's minds. I don't have the lived experience of growing up black in the United States. Mm -hmm. The whole fear of police stops and what those mean and where they go and the importance of, of really... Uh, being able to have higher levels of accountability so that that, that is a system that, and an approach that works fairly for all Americans, I get that out of our discussion. When we talk with the guys, what, what really helped shape their lives? It's these mentorship programs and teachers and, and maybe not shocks, but really made vivid to me by the conversations we've had. Doc Rivers, some of the fans of the NBA may say, why can't the guys just play the game and leave politics out of it? They may be big fans of yours and the Clippers. How would you respond to those fans? Well, first of all, we are playing the games. You know, we stop, but we are going to play and we're going to do our job. And, and so we're doing that. But more importantly, uh, and I think I got this from you, you know, politics are part of our lives, uh, our daily lives. And so if you don't get involved with it, it's going to get involved with you. Uh, also, some of these are politics. Some of these are human rights issues. Uh, you know, I think 
we think human rights issues are politics and it's not. It's what's right and what's wrong. And we should all speak up. And our players have decided, like, it's not our burden to do everything, right? But it's, it's our responsibility to get involved uh, because we want to. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I love that our guys are doing it. And I think they're doing it in a sensational way. What is, the, what is the league doing right now? Because it was really interesting and nail-biting to watch it all unfold. You know, we, we, we heard that there, there was possibly going to be a strike. Then there was a strike. Then the question was, was the season going to be canceled? And then we heard that the NBA was taking some concrete steps. What are some of those steps, Doc? And how did the league get to these decisions? It was beautiful, uh, Trevor. Uh, the players got together, uh, had a long talk over a lot of issues. And... And they came to the owners, and the owners are the partners. You know, and one of the things I want to clear up, the word boycott, well, we were, we were not boycotting the NBA, uh, or the players were not. Uh, it was more a protest about what was going on because you, know, you don't boycott your partners, you know, your friends. And so that's what made this so neat is because the owners and the players got together and they formed a partnership in what they want to do. They for, we're forming a coalition, a justice coalition, where we're going to talk about voting, uh, individual rights. Uh, you know, I love the fact that we're going to get arenas involved, uh, registration, voter suppression, all these things. We're also going to form a group uh, with this coalition to fight just single things. You know, the George Floyd bill, uh, it's on the House. It just passed right. through the House. It's sitting on the Senate floor. And you and I know it will probably sit there for a while, but that's where voting comes back in. So uh, I just think what the, the players did and the owners did, they pledged that they're going to support each other and create this coalition is just fantastic. When you said these things and when you stood up for black Americans, was it similar to what people say today about NFL athletes taking the knee? It was the same exact thing. They wanted to change the subject because they didn't like to talk about the fact that uh, too many black Americans end up dead for no good reason at the hands of police. Right. And uh, they didn't want to talk about that issue because it's troubling. Uh, it means that there's something wrong with, our, with some of our police forces, mm -hmm. uh, the way they're trained, et cetera. So uh, most people don't want to talk about that. That's a very uh, intense and uh, difficult problem to solve, but it's something we have to solve. As a black American, we want it solved now because it's our kids that are being shot down in the street. And uh, that's very troublesome, and, and we want to change that. And uh, we got to keep fighting until people understand that and, and help us change it in a positive way. And you, 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 tr you truly are trying to do it in a positive way. You, you inspire people, you speak to them, you write columns about this. There are still people who are vehemently opposed to some of the things that you say. Yeah. Like, have, have you found that there's been a change? Have you found a way to break through to people in the time that, I mean, because you've been doing this for a very long time, as you said, your career ended, and then you go, where do you go from there? Have you found any breakthrough in any way? I, I found a lot of breakthroughs. Look at the, uh, President Obama could not have been elected without that type of breakthrough. Right. Uh, without people being able to see him for his character and his, his positive attributes. Uh, and, and not being uh, upset about the color of his skin or that is, uh, his ancestry goes back to Africa. Right. That, that, that should not be an issue. It should be the content of his character and what he wants to do for America. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we get that mentality and we get that idea out to people. Um, maybe, maybe they can see that uh, black Americans are 
actually their fellow citizens, and right. uh, we want the same thing that they want. You, you've lived through many of the most painful periods in American history for black Americans, and for Americans, I would argue. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this about you, but when you were 10 years old, Emmett Till was 10 years old. He was 13. He was 13. So yes. when you were a young boy, Emmett Till was basically around the same age. Right. You were experiencing America in a similar way that he was. You, you get older and you got an opportunity, you had an opportunity to uh, interview Martin Luther King, I believe it was, yes. for a, a journalist experience. And, and then you were around when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Yes, I was. How do you prevent yourself from only being angry, from only seeing the world as against you when you've experienced so many traumas as an African-American? Well, we also have to look at the, the good side of things. Uh, and a whole lot of good things have happened. The Voting Rights Act, uh, the Civil Rights Act, uh, the fact that people are starting to understand how corrosive and horrible uh, white supremacy can be on people who are not white. Right. Um, they don't get it all the time. They think uh, everything is fine for everybody. Uh, when we can point out in uh, very valid and uh, explicit ways how that's not working and uh, we have to make this a democracy that works for everyone, um, people get that because everybody wants to be treated fairly. Right. And, uh, you know, black Americans are no different. And um, if, if white Americans can uh, see a way to understand that, we're going to make a lot of progress in, in a short period of time. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 